Now, grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to uh, John chapter 5. You know, uh, choosing a, a, a text for uh, Easter is uh, it's, it's not difficult. It's just that there's, there's so many to choose from. And the one, but I wanted you to hear from the mouth of Jesus. Uh, there's just something funner about reading uh, what he has to say. And this is in John chapter 5. Uh, I'll begin reading at verse 19, and I'll only read through verse 24. So it's, it's short. Here we go. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Well, here we are again. We meet like this once a year, and, and we discuss an issue. Uh, there, there's a long list of issues from which we could pick. We could talk about um, sequestration. Uh, we could talk about North Korea. Ooh. We could talk about uh, same-sex marriage. That's all in the news. But I've got this funky idea. Why, why don't we talk about... The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do you say? You know, some of us around here really believe that thing. Really, really believe it, it hook, line, and sinker. Others of you aren't, um, aren't quite as sure. And then, and I guess there's still others that really haven't given it a whole lot of thought. Um, and and I, I think that perhaps the reason that you haven't given it a whole lot of thought is because, um, you know, you're just kind of, kind of busy busy dealing with what all that life throws at you. You know, you're already knee deep in alligators and, you know, you just don't have time to, 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 to give some thought to some deep, rich theological concept. And so, um, and so, okay, Mr. Preacher Man, you go ahead and you just preach a little heart out. And then, then when you're done, um, I'm going to be leaving here and I'm going to have to go back to real life, you know, back to the nitty gritty. Don't you love that term, nitty gritty? <laughs> I mean, is, is that an old term? I mean, did I just date myself? I mean, do y'all not use that anymore? I, I, I still use the term. Um, maybe I just showed you how I'm 65. Um, but I still use the term, and, and um, I don't know where it came from. I did do some research about it this week, but um, um, I, I know what it means. And, and I think you do too. It's a, it's a term that means when you're, when you're done talking about all the unimportant stuff, then you can get down to the... Nitty gritty, you know uh, the, where the stuff is 
is basic and essential. You know, kind of the, the, uh, the, the bottom line of, of all of those things. You know, so, so um, let's, let's, um, let's skip all the chit-chat and let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Of course, there are those, as you would imagine, uh, who want to assign some kind of sexual overtone to the word. Um, I'm not using that that way, and it's not the customary way the word is used. I'm saying all of that to say this, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, what we're going to discuss today, in my opinion, is the nitty-gritty. It is the bottom line. It is the basic and the essential. I would say that everything's riding on it. And when you leave here this morning, I hope, I hope you're more convinced that that's true. One of my heroes is a, is a guy who was born in India. His name is Ravi Zacharias. And um, Ravi wrote this book, oh, 1994, I think. It's not a very good book, but um, the title is provocative. Can a man live without God? And, and in this book, he, he dedicates about four pages of the book to the subject of the resurrection. And in those four pages, he said something that I, that I really have never forgotten. He said, when it comes to the resurrection, there are really only two questions that matter. Question number one, did it happen? Question number two, if it did happen, so what? It's that so what question that I want to spend most of my time on this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, um, it's where American minds really are. I mean, we want to know about how does this really affect me? What's the takeaway? We'll get to that in a minute. But let, let me just spend just, just a couple of minutes on this, this first question about did it happen? Now, guys, let me say up front that I am one of those... Um, oddities that, that I believe it. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm the only one in the room, but, but I believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's a metaphor. I don't think it's an analogy. I think Jesus actually came out of a tomb. In fact, I visited that tomb that I, I think that he was in, in uh, right outside of Jerusalem. I think he physically bodily resurrected from the dead. But, but others of you are not, not quite as sure about that. And, and for you, I, I, I want to suggest a couple of things that I, I just want you to think about as you, as you consider your position, okay? Number one, no event in human history has ever been subjected to more scrutiny and analysis than has been, than, than, the, than the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been. Now, that right there ought to tell you a lot. I mean, that ought to tell you something, I mean, if, if, if nothing else, it ought to tell you, well, gosh, that thing is really important. One way or the other, whether it did or it didn't, it, 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 apparently it's, a, it's pretty important to, um, uh, to a lot of people. And then when you read the ingenious ways and suggestions that have been concocted to try and falsify the claim of the resurrection, um, then, then you really start to, to think, hmm, this is curious, the, 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 the last two that are standing, that is the theories that are proffered to explain that Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, are, are something that's called the swoon theory. Maybe you, I think it was popularized by David C. Strauss. And the other one is the, the disciple's self-delusion. 
But gang, I don't know whether you'll take my word for this or not, but th- those two things have been so thoroughly discredited over the years that nobody even takes them seriously anymore. Those two suggestions about, or explanations as to why he didn't. Nobody, nobody even talks about those two things anymore. They used to be big, but not anymore. I mean, if you're, if you're determined to hold on to your, to your no, he didn't raise from the dead position. If you're determined, your best option comes from um, a, a, a German theologian in the 20th century by the name of Rudolf Bultmann. That's your best option. Um, Bultmann um, created a new word. It's called demythologizing. If you'll mention that word, it'll really impress your friends. But <laughs> Demythologizing simply means that I'm going I'm to remove all the myth out of the Bible. And, and, and Bultmann suggested that the resurrection was one of those things. It was a myth. And, and he said the resurrection didn't happen um, because resurrections don't happen. Do you know what that is, ladies and gentlemen? That's an argument that's an a priori argument. Have you ever heard of that term, a priori? You know what an a priori argument is? It's an argument that says, you know, resurrections don't happen because resurrections don't happen. It's, it's a, you come to a conclusion about something before you ever investigate the, the evidence that's available to you. And, and ladies and gentlemen, that's what I call intellectual suicide. And that's your best option. You know, um, if you choose that option, you're going to be left holding a bag, ladies and gentlemen. And, and inside that bag are about six pieces of evidence that if you, if you ever get over your academic prejudice, those, those six pieces of evidence are, are discussed on page 162 of this book, if you'd like to read it. I'll, I'll, be, I'll send you a copy. <laughs> the, the other thing that, that I'd, I'd like to say to you who... Um, are not so sure is simply this. Am I the only one that thinks this is odd? Um, What I mean by that is this. Um, We all know that religious conversation is outlawed in in the workplace and in public education. We all know that. But about the only name that will get you in trouble is the name of Jesus. You know, scholars all over the world go to incredible lengths to overturn the claims that Jesus Christ made, and particularly this one. Um, But did you know this? Did you know that Mormonism claims that Joseph Smith was visited by the angel Moroni who gave him five tablets on which the Book of Mormon is based? Did you know that? My point is simply nobody examines that. Nobody, nobody gets all hot and bothered about that one. By the way, did you know that Islam, Mohammed claims to have taken a trip to heaven and come back? Did you know about that? But nobody examines that one. Nobody seems so determined to over, to overthrow those, but they are desperate to overthrow this one. Do you think that's odd? By the way, the Krishna, you ever heard of him? The average student in India 
Doesn't have the slightest notion as to whether he was born or ever existed at all. But that same student can, has got firm convictions about what Jesus Christ did and didn't do. Does that strike you as odd? You know, ladies and gentlemen, our, our calendar is broken up into halves, B.C. and A.D. You do know, don't you, that B.C. and A.D. both refer to Jesus. Before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Jesus Christ splits history in half. He traumatizes history. But don't you dare breathe his name in your math class. Do y'all think that's odd? I do. So here's my point, my dear friend. Um, If you think an a priori argument is, is unsubstantial... I do. And, and you think that some of this opposition to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a bit odd. And what I hope you will do is, um, is take a fresh look at the evidence supporting the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Now, all of that brings me to the, uh, to, the, to the real point, and that is the so what question, the so what part of this whole thing. Because as I said, that's what Americans want to hear about. <laughs> you know, we want to know, uh, you know, how does this affect me? Uh, you know, I want to know, I want to know um, uh, all this uh, theological babble. Uh, you know, what does it do to affect me? What's the takeaway? Big, big word, takeaway. Well, um, to answer that question, I want to tell you two stories. Uh, One of the stories comes um, from the history books. The other story comes from this here Bible book. (laughs) But I I, want to tell you you two stories. And the one that comes from the history books is about a man by the name of Alfred Nobel. Ever heard that name? Alfred Nobel was a Swedish chemist who invented dynamite. Um, Made a fortune because he invented dynamite. And... um, uh, his, his life makes a fascinating read, but there was something that happened in his life um, that changed his life forever. I mean, from top to bottom. It happened in April 1888, and um, his brother Ludwig, Ludwig, don't you like that name? Um, Ludwig died. But that's not what changed Alfred. What changed him is that he he was living in France at the time, but the French newspaper that he was reading one morning in his kitchen confused Alfred with his brother. And so he sat there one morning in his kitchen reading his own obituary due to the mistake of the reporter at the newspaper. And the obituary... Um, that was written about Alfred, who was fully alive, which was supposed to be about Ludwig. Did you get it? There was a confusion in the mind of the reporter, and so he wrote about Albert. And let me read you some of the things that he wrote. This was the headline of the obituary. The merchant of death is dead. Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich 
by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. This man whose personal fortune had come from his discovery of a new way to mutilate and kill. So Alfred is sitting in his kitchen. He's reading that. He was overcome by the fact that that this was going to be his continuing legacy long after he was dead. Through the through the words of this this mistaken reporter, it changed everything. He. Um, He almost immediately dedicated his entire fortune to what was called, as you know, the Nobel Prize. And he created Nobel Prizes in the fields of physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, and the final one, peace. Isn't that odd? He creates a Nobel Prize for those who labor in peace. Oh, those others are objectively quantifiable. You know, chemistry and medicine and physics. But peace? What is that all about? Well, I'll tell you what it's all about, ladies and gentlemen. This man got a, through this, this mistaken uh, obituary, he got, a, got an, a chance to look into the future. And what he saw so impressed him that it changed everything about his life. All of his ethics were overturned. Now he wants to reward somebody. Who spends his life laboring to bring about peace. And by the way, I invented dynamite. (laughs) But ladies and gentlemen, because Alfred Nobel, having been allowed to artificially look into the future and see something about that, it changed his entire life, how he lived it, all of his ethics, because of a little Tiny peak. Into his future. Now let me tell you the other story. The one, the, 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 the Bible story. Book, story. Uh, if you know anything about the book of Acts, you know that um, the last eight chapters of the book of Acts... It's really one story. It's about the Apostle Paul. It takes place over about three years. And um, it's, a, it, it's not a funny story at all, but it, it starts in chapter 21. It doesn't end until the end of the book, which is chapter 28. So you've got eight chapters dedicated to one little story. But it, it covers two or three years. But um, um, it starts when Paul takes a Gentile into the temple. His name was Trophimus. That was in chapter 21. And, and the Jews didn't like that at all. The Jews attack Paul and want to kill him. The Romans hear about it, and so they send in some troops, and they extract 
Paul from the clutches of these Jews that are trying to kill him. And they're, they arrest him and are taking him into custody. And he turns to the Romans and he says, hey, could I speak to these people before we go? And so they say, well, go ahead. So he speaks to them. And he tells them his testimony. And then uh, after they hear his testimony, they want to kill him again. So they take him to jail and, and put him in jail. And then the next morning, the Jews send over a, a council of Jews to, to, to see about uh, Paul. And Paul speaks to them and tells them everything that's true and everything that they need to know. And, and as a result of all that, that, that reasoned um, uh, presentation, they also want to kill him. And then, then um, right in the middle of all these people wanting to kill poor Apostle Paul, um, God appears to... Um, uh, to Paul, and he says uh, in chapter 23, verse 11, he says this, Paul, uh, God says this to Paul. He says, um, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, stood by Paul and said, take courage for as you have been, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, listen to this part, so you must testify also in Rome. You get it? Uh, uh, mm, I might need that. Um, uh, Paul, Paul is going to go to Rome. He's going to go to Rome. You know, it's time for Paul to go to Rome. And so, um, they, right after that, uh, the Lord appeared to him. They, um, um, uh, they, they uncover this plot to assassinate Paul. And so, Paul is taken to Caesarea under armed Roman guard. And uh, there he's put in a jail. And for the next two years, he meets with all these people. He meets with all these people and he tells the story, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in chapter 25, uh, uh, Paul, I mean, he's just getting tired of presenting his story. And he finally says, okay, I appeal to Caesar. And uh, the Roman governor says, well, you know, if you hadn't done that, we could have let you go. But since you've appealed to Caesar, we're going to have to send you to Rome. And so, as you know, they commit him to a Roman centurion. And so he's going to take him all the way to Rome. And they're going to go by boat. You remember that? And so they head out by boat to go to Rome. And while they're on that boat, and, and they, a big storm occurs. Big storm. And uh, this storm uh, is threatening their lives. They, take, they throw off all the cargo, and, and they finally come to the conclusion, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And Paul steps forward and says, wait a minute. You're not all going to die. And they say, well, how do you know that? And he says, well, um, the God whom I served told me this very night... That I'm going to have to stand before Caesar and give my testimony. That's in, um, oh, it's like um, Acts 27, 24. Uh, so, that's the second time that God has come to Paul and says, I'm sending you to Rome and you're going to give your testimony before Caesar. And so, um, then of course, they run upon a reef. And um, the boat tears apart. And everybody is thrown into the Adriatic Ocean. And um, they begin to swim to shore. You know, somebody takes a plank and paddles and the other people and they're screaming and they're hollering and they're, they're, we're dying and they're scared and this is awful and this is terrible and, and we're going to, you know, there's cursing God and they're all swimming. Here's my point. Do you think Paul's swim was any different from those rest of the rest of those guys? I mean, there's Paul, and his, his job is just as hard as the rest of them. He's got a, by the way, they end up on the Isle of Malta. Remember that? And they're swimming, they finally arrived at, at Malta. And Paul had to swim just as hard as the rest. That water was just as cold to Paul as it was to anybody. 
But underneath Paul, there was a difference. And it wasn't a plank. Underneath Paul was the promise of God about his eventual safety. So you ask me, if Jesus Christ did indeed resurrect from the dead, so what? Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the difference that the resurrection makes for us is the same difference that it made for Alfred Nobel, for him to get a glimpse into where his future would ultimately land. What difference does the resurrection make? It makes the same difference that it made for the Apostle Paul when he knew that even though life was hard and the challenges were huge, That I had the promise of God underneath me. And it was that promise that kept me swimming. I don't know how he's going to do this. This is really hard. I don't like all these challenges. But I've got his promise. I've got to stand before Caesar. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the non-Christian world calls me a fool. And the rest of you too, if you believe in this stuff called the resurrection. They call me a fool. But you know what? Here's what the resurrection does. The resurrection tells me just a little bit about my future. And as a result of knowing just a little bit about my future, I have reconfigured my entire present. All of my ethics have been influenced by the knowledge that I've got one little piece of a glimpse of what the future looks like. And not only that, I've got this. Um, Knowing That he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Did you get that? Can I read? Knowing that he who raised Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So not only, ladies and gentlemen, have I had a little peek in the future. I also have promises underneath me. Promises that enable me to to face death. Promises that allow me to believe that though I'm just as scared of death as anybody else in this room, that the conclusion will be a good one. Well, that's the problem we have with you Christians. You're so unscientific. 
Let me tell you what we say to our people. And let me tell you what we say to the, to the, to the, to the skeptical community. Here's what we say. We say, you need to die with dignity. Now, you're going to end in oblivion. It's going to be ultimately annihilation. And you're about to become food for worms. But we want you to die with dignity. And by the way, we want you to live a life full of meaning. Now, your, your beginning was an evolutionary accident. And your ending is the utter oblivion. You, you began with no meaning. You end with no meaning. But somehow we want you to find meaning in the middle. Ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you that that's a rich, pure form of insanity. The skeptical, unbelieving world tells me that love is nothing more than a chemical reaction in my brain. The skeptical community tells me that that I'm supposed to work for social justice. And then they take me to the biology class and they teach me about the survival of the fittest. Why should I work for social justice, ladies and gentlemen, if it's true that only the strong survive? My dear skeptical friend, is that the answers that you have for me when I start asking questions about meaning and purpose in life? With all due respect, is that the best you got? Yep. That's about the best you got. Jesus Christ saves me from that. He saves me from living a life that is A mockery of the mind. Because he's given me a little glimpse of the future. And he's made me promises on which my life is supported. I'll tell you one more story and I'm done. You know, you got to be my age to remember this. But um, uh, you know the name Billy Graham. Billy Graham is a great gift to the church. He's... He's towards the end of his life now. It wouldn't surprise me if he died tomorrow. I mean, he's just feeble, but he was a great gift to the church. um, um, But back in the, I think it was the early 60s, Billy Graham was invited to come to uh, West Germany and put on a crusade. And um, um, you know that after the war ended in 1945, Germany, who was the big bad guy in World War II, was split into two halves. You know that, don't you? There was East Germany, which was given to the communists, and then there was West Germany that was a democratic uh, republic. Um, and then Berlin was split. You know, they had East and West Berlin and all that business. You remember all that? Well, the first elected chancellor of West Germany was a guy by the name of Conrad Adenauer. Now, we're just going to call him president because we understand what a president is. But his name was Conrad Adenauer. And Billy Graham was asked to come to West Germany and put on a crusade. And while he was there, um, and by the way, um, Adenauer uh, was, the, he had been the mayor of Cologne, Germany, and um, he was arrested and imprisoned because of his opposition to the Nazi regime and Hitler. But um, he survived and got out in 1949. He was elected president of West Germany and, and ruled Germany through 1963. That's a long time. 
And it was Adenauer whose job it was to pick up the pieces of a broken country that had been ruined by the devastations of World War II and put it back together. And thus he did. And not only that, ladies and gentlemen, she became so healthy that in 1989, Germany was, uh, West Germany was then able to absorb East Germany where all the communists had ruined it and now has become this economic juggernaut in Europe as we know it today. Uh, in large part due to the leadership of a man by the name of Conrad Adenauer. Well, while Billy was there, the two of, of them shared a meal. And in that meal, Conrad Adenauer looked at Billy Graham and he said, Dr. Graham, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Billy said, I was a bit taken aback by the pointedness of the question. And and he said, well, of course I do. And then Conrad Adenauer said this, Mr. Graham, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, I know of no other hope for this world. That was a man who knew a whole lot about the nitty-gritty. And he said, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for the world. And ladies and gentlemen, Neither do I. Here's what I have to offer you. Jesus Christ. Crucified. Dead and buried. And on the third day. He rose again from the dead. Christianity's great answer to the question of so what is to be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I trust you know it. Our Father, I do pray that you um, would remind us, remind your people, remind your people, O God, that, that what we have underneath us is a promise that's going to get us all the way to the shore, even though it's difficult and even though it's treacherous and scary and hard. Would you, would you support us? Through those glorious promises like like I read from 2 Corinthians 4. Would you remind us while we swim that even though it's hard, that there is a promise of life beyond. And Lord, as a result of having gotten a glimpse of what awaits us, would you would you help us to reorganize and to reorient our entire life such that it reflects 
our great love for Jesus Christ. Lord, if you've brought people in here today who have not yet met this glorious Savior of ours, would you send them out of here with such a, such a pain in their heart that they will not quite get rid of it until they embrace Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. Do that, Father. Do it for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen.